Now let us return to our presentation. We start with a an excellent subject, and he must be just that, one of those rare individuals who accepts and carries uh, through every suggestion without hesitation. In addition, we need a man or a woman who is highly intelligent and physically tough. Then we start devel to develop a case of multiple personality through the use of hypnotism. In his normal working state, which we will call personality A or PA, this individual will become a rabid communist. He will join the party, follow the party line, and make himself as objectionable as possible to the authorities. Note that he will be acting in good faith. He is a communist, or rather his PA is a communist and will behave as such. Then we develop personality B, the secondary personality, the unconscious personality if you wish, although this is somewhat of a contradiction in terms. This personality is rabidly American and anti-communist. It has all the information possessed by PA, the normal personality, whereas PA does not have this advantage. You will recognize this relation as similar to that which we had in Sally and the Angel from the famous Beauchamp case, also the clear-cut difference in ideals. Uh, we can mention that later as an old case. The proper training of a person for this role would be long and tedious, but once he was trained, you would have a super spy, compared to which any creation in a mystery story is just plain weak. My super spy plays his role as a communist in his waking state, aggressively, consistently, fearlessly. But his PB is a loyal American, and PB has all the memories of PA. As a loyal American, he will not hesitate to divulge those memories, and needless to say, he, we will make sure he has the opportunity to do so when occasion demands. Here is how the technique would work. Once again, let us choose the imaginary aggressive Cubans as examples. In the event of war, but preferably well before the outbreak of war, we would start our organization. We could easily secure, say, 100 excellent hypnotic subjects of Cuban stock living in the United States who spoke their language fluently and then work on those subjects. In hypnotism, we would build up their loyalty to our country, but out of hypnotism, in the waking or normal state, we would do the opposite, striving to convince them they had a genuine grievance against this country and encouraging them to engage in fifth column activities. So we build up a case of dual personality. They would, as we said before, be urged in the waking state to become fifth columnist enemies of the United States. But we would also point out to them in hypnotism that this is really a pose, that their real loyalty lay with this country, offering them protection and reward for their activities. Through them, we would hope to be kept informed of the activities of their friends, this information, of course, being it's obtained in a trance state. They would also be very useful as plants in concentration camps or in any other situation where it was suspected that services might be of use to our intelligence department. Interesting that he, like, hypothesizes we might have concentration camps in the near future. Uh, yeah, but anyways, well, um... obviously, he doesn't have a problem with it. Like he said, nope. you know, like, well, I mean, if everyone is so concerned about ethics, you know, well, I don't think Hitler will do that. Or, you know, it's like, well, it's like, well, so we should become Hitler. You know? Yeah, like, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, obviously so, there's no compunction about that. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he's saying that, like, you know, uh, th this is a really high level task and hardly one somnambulist in, say, 10 or even 100 would be suitable. Uh, but it would take a lot of work, but it could be done. He says a further extension of the same proposal would carry the war into the enemy's country, into Cuba in this case. So I don't know. Was like everybody at Bay of Pigs like fucking hypnotized? Anyways, um, these subjects would be admirable for planting in the enemy army with a view to obtaining information or even for the ends of civilian, sab civilian sabotage. We ask you to note another point which uh, could contribute to the peace of enemy, uh, uh, which would... 
sorry, it says bot contribute, it's a typo, to the piece of enemy military intelligence. It is impossible to detect men who have been prepared for espionage work by this method. There is no test by which you can discover them. Blood pressure, heart rate, electroencephalograph, psychogavonic reflex, a lot, all of these devices, which we can use to pick up the most subtle bo- bodily changes, are worthless for there are no bodily changes. Drugs reveal nothing, at least at the present moment. This presents the military with all the makings of a very bad dream. For instance, suppose the enemy places one of these men in an American military intelligence organization numbering, let us say, 1,000. This man would, of course, be trained in reverse English, so to speak. In his normal waking condition, he would be a staunch American. His secondary personality would be that of an equally staunch communist, ready to disclose any secrets obtained by personality A. He would be just about just as dangerous an individual as anybody could imagine. Suppose that the chief of that organization had reason to believe such a person existed, but did not know who he was. The search for the proverbial needle in the haystack would begin. The chief couldn't count on an American research hypnotist for much help. The super spy was made according to specifications by an equally able hypnotist on the other side. They both know their business, and they both know that the matter of detection is almost hopeless. The chief has only the methods used to locate an ordinary spy, and this man is as immune to these methods as a human being can be. In his waking state, he's a loyal American. The right hand literally does not know what the left hand is doing, and no one would be more surprised than himself to discover that he was the blackest of spies. This one fact gives him great protection. Yeah, he talks about, like, yeah, that basically if you question him, he has no conflict. He says mental conflict, avoiding mental conflict is like a linchpin of his approach to uh, hypnotism. He says... Uh, In psychology, we hear much about mental conflict. In hypnotism, we do everything possible to avoid this conflict, especially in the field of ethics. When multiple personality appears spontaneously, as we know it does, it is a device on the part of the mind to solve this matter of conflict. The personality splits, one part acting under one group of ethical ideals, the other governed by the conflicting group. Under this adroit arrangement, there is no conflict. Goethe said that he had the makings in himself of gentlemen and of a rogue. Many of us are in the same situation, and at times, the conflict can become quite acute. In a case of real multiple personality, the conflict is eliminated. The gentleman goes his way, the rogue goes his way, and both are quite happy with the arrangement. So a synthetic hypnotic spy with a dual personality is extremely hard to detect. Then what can be done about it? See if you can follow this next move, one which we shall dub the countermining technique. There is a diversity of techniques which can be employed. In the one we are about to describe, we need to make no attempt to split the personality, largely because there is no ethical conflict involved. Our subject is playing a straight hand, so to speak, although the hand is a little bit complicated. He just goes on to talk about how, like, somebody who has multiple personality disorder... uh, would be able to fake a hypnotic uh, a hypnotic trance and psyop people so they would never know for sure if he was really hypnotized. There's an interesting passage actually, um, like in the uh, hypno- FBI hypnosis file uh, mm-hmm. from a uh, an FBI agent E.P. Coffee who mm-hmm. went to actually go meet with Esther Brooks and uh, describes, like, his demonstration of hypnosis to them. He uh, writes, uh, Last night, Mr. Quinn Tam and I conducted the first of a planned series of experiments for the purpose of determining, if possible, the value of hypnotism and the detection of deception. Although we have given considerable study to the technique of the application and induction of hypnotism, and Mr. Tam has been a week on the subject with Dr. Esther Brooks, we have not had previous practical experience in inducing hypnotism. 
the volunteer subject was uh, special agent redacted of the number three training school and he proved to be a most ideal subject for the purpose during the evening he was rather readily hypnotized on three separate occasions it is not believed that he fully realized he was being hypnotized so i guess quintam studied with dr estabrooks and they're like okay we're going to try to apply this so this is maybe kind of the turning point where estabrooks was of less immediate use to, to the fbi at least so mm-hmm. uh he says the subject was advised that we were conducting experiments in the detection of deception utilizing various psychological phenomena. First, the lie detector was attached to the subject and several simple tests run. Subjects showed an unusually well-balanced emotional makeup under the lie detector. At the end of these simple tests, subject was informed that he was too tense and that it was desired he relaxed completely. Mr. Tam then instructed him to assume a comfortable position and completely relax, at which time Mr. Tam made numerous verbal suggestions on relaxation and sleep. The subject responded very nicely, and a control test involving the stiffening of the arm, this is a classic uh, thing, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, Estabrooks and Erickson both uh, popularized, mm-hmm. uh, was used to determine the extent of the hypnosis. Our experience in this respect was somewhat limited, but we are both of the opinion that he was in a light trance. The subject was then awakened, and he was informed that he had been successful in relaxing to some extent, but that he was still tense, and it was thought he could attain more perfect relaxation. He then volunteered to assume a more comfortable position and the technique was again applied. On this occasion, I made the verbal suggestion of relaxation and we thought it desirable to carry the suggestion further than the first time. As a result, the subject went into a deeper trance and control tests involving the stiff arm test and inability to open the eyelids convinced us that he had gone into a deeper state of hypnotic sleep. The second test was considerably longer, taking about 12 minutes. The subject was again awakened after the control test at which time he was told that his relaxation efforts had been quite successful on that occasion and that the experiment would be continued, and this time the questions with which he was previously asked on the lie detector would be repeated. Again, the subject relaxed, and on this occasion, Mr. Tam applied the technique in the form of verbal suggestions of relaxation. Again, the subject readily went into a hypnotic trance. A simple card test was then given to him, and he was told to truthfully reply to the questions asked. As each card was presented and described to him, he replied slowly and with the inarticulation of the hypnotized. His responses were truthful in all instances. At this time, I was doing the questioning after Mr. Tam had informed the hypnotized subject that I would undertake the interrogation. Following the card test, I asked the subject two personal questions. Whether he had practiced law at Centerville, Alabama prior to his employment with the Bureau, to which he responded in the affirmative, and whether the compensation received from his law practice at the time had been satisfactory to him, which he replied in the negative. The subject was then awakened and asked to describe his experiences, which he did in a somewhat hazy fashion, giving rather indistinct indications of at least partial amnesia. In this connection, it should be noted that previous experience with the subject during lectures has disclosed he has an unusually good memory. He was unable to accurately recall, however, about 50% of what transpired during the hypnotic trance. I believe we are indeed fortunate in drawing this subject for the first experiment inasmuch as he was very susceptible, which made it much easier for us. At the same time, we fully appreciate that other subjects will not be so easily induced into the state of hypnosis. Further experiments with this subject are also planned inasmuch as we did not care to go, ver- to go far with the subject the first evening of this work. He is very willing to continue the work. The most encouraging outcome of this first experiment is the indication which we have received that the use of the lie detector provides a very excellent and tactful approach to the subject of hypnosis. We are pledging our subjects to secrecy at the present so that there won't be undue discussion on these experiments around the Bureau, and we plan to continue them on a conservative basis. You will be kept advised of the progress. Mm. Uh, so I think that's a really like telling and like interesting, uh, you know, revealing and interesting report because the 
lie detector, the way that it also works is to sort of in get set the framing of the like truth telling and the revealing mm-hmm. of of the truth. And I think that is something that is kind of important. I read, you know, uh, it's definitely more uh, apropos to Erickson, but Esther Brooks in many ways, except for the whole thing of like only one in five people, which I don't think Erickson subscribes to, and certain other differences, uh, like his sheer enthusiasm for, uh, you know, weaponizing hypnosis maybe. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he was mostly an Ericksonite. And I did find this interesting article called uh, From Erickson to Attribution, Attaching Meaning to Hypnosis, which is uh-huh. from uh, the 90s, I believe. It was published in, let me see, a Protectual and Motor Skills Journal. And it's uh, by David P. Uh, Forey, who I think wrote on the subject uh, a fair amount. He has an interesting kind of uh, approach to this, which is uh, kind of questioning the sort of uh, Ericksonian ontology, which is very similar to Estabrook's, like the idea of the like these reified concepts of like the unconscious and the subconscious and the state of consciousness. Like uh, mm-hmm. he says... Uh, limitations of the Ericksonian way of thinking as a section. He says, by focusing on the intrapsychic activities of the individual, both in the hypnotic situation and with regard to the conceptualization of family functioning, Ericksonian hypnotherapy can be seen to follow the logic of reductionism. This means that whole situations, events, and processes are reduced to what is considered to be their essential elements. In social situations, these elements are often descriptive concepts which are given names and which are then treated as if they were semi-concrete entities with particular characteristics. This is a process of reification which has been widely criticized. In Ericksonian thinking, many such reified concepts are discernible, e.g. trance, the unconscious, state of consciousness, indirect suggestion. It has, for example, been shown that the use of indirect suggestion rests on a whole series of reification processes which restrict the hypnotist on both a conceptual and practical level. Furthermore, the reified concepts are seen to be connected to one another through linear cause and effect. For example, indirect suggestion causes a bypassing of the conscious mind to reach the unconscious, which causes it to react in a certain way. And by adhering to a notion of objectivity of observation, this linear process is regarded as independent of and influenced by both the hypnotist and the situation. It is as if, following this example, a, quote, indirect suggestion is given much like a pill, and it then also works much like a pill. It reaches its intended destination and has the intended effect regardless by whom and in which circumstances it was administered. He gives an example of, like, this, uh, you know, dentist thing where mm-hmm. he, like, trained people to, yeah. He came up with this idea, you know, which is uh, very of interest to uh, all the intelligence agencies that were interested in Erickson and, and Esther Brooks as well, uh, which is, of course, the idea of, like, rapid-inducing hypnosis, you know, because yeah, in seconds. prior to that, you know, it's like, yeah, like, TikTok, you know, like, swing in the po- like, Freud swing in the pocket watch or whatever, you know. So he, like, uh, basically adopted this idea. He says, a good example of the limiting effects of this kind of reasoning can be found in the development of and investigations into rapid induction analgesia, uh, Barber found that by visiting dentist surgeries, offering patients greater comfort during dental procedures, and then acting in a certain way towards these patients, he could get 99% of them to go through various dental procedures, many of them very painful ones, without requiring chemical analgesia. This was indeed a finding of major importance. However, in true Ericksonian fashion, he considered what he said to the patients after obtaining their cooperation to have had a linear causal effect on their behavior, disregarding the context in which, and even to an extent, the way in which it was said. In a reductionistic manner, he gave to what he said a name and even an abbreviation, RIA, thereby reifying, making a pill out of, what was essentially a portion of a much larger occurrence. 
Accepting the newly created technique as objectively real, numerous other researchers tried to replicate Barber's finding. By treating rapid induction analgesia as an entity, a pill, they applied it in contexts which were completely different from the one Barber used. For instance, Immelman applied RIA in an office, days and sometimes weeks before the dental appointment, and sent the patients for dental work with a post-hypnotic suggestion. Used, uh, Van Gorp used a laboratory setting in uh, which cold presser pain was administered to a randomly selected group of students who received RIA by means of a tape recording via earphones. The fact that in none of these and other replication studies were the results nearly as impressive as those found by Barber was conceptualized as an indication of failure to replicate Barber's findings. By adhering to the logic of reductionism, linearity, and objectivity, all of these researchers failed to appreciate the role played by the total context. Barber's subjects were real dental patients, surrounded by the sound, smells, apparatus, and people found in dental surgery. They had a real immediate need for analgesia. It was not Barber's words after a certain point which, like an injection, caused the analgesia. Rather, it was uh, the analgesia occurred in a total situation in which it was highly appropriate. Forey, you know, quoting studying himself, illustrated this by reporting on a patient who could not obtain hypnotic analgesia in his consulting rooms but experienced complete analgesia in the dental surgery. And his, uh, he has a very mm. interesting kind of idea about like how uh, to get around this because he does believe that the Ericksonian methods, this author believes they're they're useful, mm -hmm. but he thinks that the whole epistemology like has oh. uh, serious flaws. Yeah. So he says uh, that there's like a consensual domain between the hypnotist and the uh, hypnotizee. So he says that when people enter treatment. They cannot but have particular ideas about themselves, about each other, about the problem, about treatment, and about the specific mode and agency of treatment. You know, this is mm -hmm. obviously in a psychotherapeutic context, but you can see how this applies to any other context in which you would be doing something like this. The yeah. treatment agent or therapist also has ideas about all these aspects, and this person is part of the treatment system, which comes into being as is the client. Whatever is perceived by anybody in the system can only be interpreted by reference to the person's existing ideas and attributions. This process of continual interpretation constitutes the evolution of the particular set of ideas. No single perception has a direct or linear influence on a particular idea held by any given member of the system, but as the system evolves, a consensual domain develops within the system. This does not necessarily refer to agreement between the members, but to a way of being together, a way in which the situation is mutually defined. Even if, for example, a couple is in continual strife, there is an implicit consensus that blame, anger, resentment, etc. can be expressed and that actions which are perceived as in accord with these sentiments can be carried out, such as shouting, gesticulating, and even possibly assaulting of the other. The very disagreement of one partner with the other's behavior is part of the consensual domain between them. This is very dialectical. And this no consensual domain uh, therefore embodies the problem behavior and is in a continual process of evolution, as is a set of ideas held at any moment by each individual member of the system. This process can be seen as co-evolutionary. Whatever is perceived as attributed particular meaning by each individual on the basis of a set of ideas at the particular moment in interplay with the consensual domain at that time. Every verbal or nonverbal action performed by anybody in the system, including the therapist, is imbued with meaning by everybody else in the system. The particular meaning attributed to it by any one member of the system has to do with the set of ideas held by that member at that moment, and this set of ideas is related to the consensual domain existing in the system at that time. Uh, so, hmm. you know, he talks about this a little bit more and then he says something that, uh, you know, I think, uh, is, uh, very interesting. You know, he talks about, uh, metaphor a little bit and, uh, indirection, like, you know, uh, some other stuff, but hmm. then he, uh, gets to this idea. Like, uh, he says, 
Because people attribute different meanings to the concept of hypnosis, these attributions can be utilized to perturb the consensual domain. For instance, if a family or client considers hypnotic age regression to be a vehicle for establishing the quote, true cause of a particular problem, such regression can often be fruitfully employed to seed ideas leading to an eventual reframing of the problem. Hmm. On the other hand, if a client or family is fearful of what they consider to be the awesome power of hypnosis, then instead of reassuring them, the therapist might perturb the system by implying that hypnosis might need to be used if other avenues fail, thereby capitalizing on the particular meaning attributed to the concept of hypnosis. This kind of strategic use of people's attributions regarding hypnosis is difficult to reconcile with Ericksonian thinking, according to which certain attributions are correct, such as that hypnosis is, quote, state of consciousness, and others are wrong. So obviously, mm. like at the time, like, you know, and people in the FBI at least, like, weren't uh, uh, onto this idea. But I mm -hmm. do think that this is very interesting and has, like, a whole relevance to the way that, like, you know, uh, predictive programming, like, you know, yeah, uh, conditioning, yeah. like, things like that, like, work, uh, or the way that, like, you know, things like hypnosis, like, really work. Like, uh, you can see in that report from 1939 with the FBI agents how, like, you can see a model of how the cat sort of consensual uh, domain or that, like, uh, yeah, conversational system domain. or whatever works between them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you could almost think about, to you know, to, to cop a term from our, our favorite anarchists, like, you know, manufacturing the consensual domain. It would yeah, be something exactly. that perhaps could be of great value to the uh, mm -hmm. to those yeah. with the power to do such a thing. <laughs> right. Uh, like, uh, yeah, well, you can manipulate it like you can manipulate people's own concepts. And it's interesting how like the idea of hypnosis and what it does and the very mystique around it has such utility. Like uh, there's actually an article in that same FBI document that was excerpted. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things in that article, actually. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, he talks about uh, it actually might be good to read because it goes into uh, some of like uh, what uh esther brooks was also into which is he was like also kind of like into eugenics you know he wrote i'm shocked you know yeah he uh yeah you might uh yeah, well i mean yeah and also like yeah. psychological uh i mean there's one part where he starts to bring up uh at the end of that chapter maybe before we totally move on from it uh, yeah because he invokes erickson and talks about <laughs> he starts to get into like what the future applications ought to be in his view for mm -hmm. this type of hypnotic programming and stuff and uh and what the ramifications for society you know could be ideally um and also like the cold war aspect of it um mm -hmm. So I'll just uh, just a couple things I excerpted here. Uh, near the end of it, he says, uh, the writer admits that no one knows the effectiveness of these proposals that he's outlined. No satisfactory experiments have yet been done on the subject. As we've said, M.H. Erickson has done excellent work proving to his satisfaction that such uses of hypnotism would be quite impossible. But W.R. Wells and L.W. Rowland have done excellent work proving just the opposite. So we may cancel them out with a strong scientific presumption that in certain cases, at least, it is possible. It seems to the writer that this conflict uh, is largely due to operator attitude, a fact largely overlooked up to now, which has a strong clouding effect on many experiments. So if any brother psychologist should make the dogmatic statement that the uses we here propose for hypnotism are quite impossible, we are quite justified in saying that as a scientist, he also is quite impossible. We must admit <laughs> that no one knows or will admit he knows the answer, but at least contend that the weight of evidence is in our favor. That leaves the subject wide open." 
and then a little further down, we hear a great deal about brainwashing these days, and we run into a most confused picture. This famous, the famous Russian purges of a few years back, with the confessions of the accused before the court, the trial of Cardinal Midshenti, the experiences of our own prisoners in Korea. What has all this to do with hypnotism? Possibly far more than the average American would guess. Let us look at it this way. Professor Clark Hall of Yale, who was one of the greatest of American psychologists, linked hypnotism closely to the so-called conditioned reflex. Pavlov, the Russian, was of course the world's greatest authority on this unique device. Russian psychology in the present day follows Pavlov in a slavish imitation, which we in the Western world simply cannot understand. Call this brainwashing technique a form of hypnotism, of a conditioned reflex, of reflexology, the terms don't matter. Clark Hall, were he alive, would say that we were simply using different terms for the same thing. This whole subject of brainwashing, including those fantastic confessions at the Russian trials and from our own men in Korea, is a fascinating study in and of itself. We have definite ideas as to how these ends are attained and undoubtedly could do just as well in this matter of brainwashing as our communist friends, if we wished so. Our interest he here lies- even the fantastic yeah. conversions of our men to the communist cause, uh, you know, is- I agree, it, like, it is yeah. fantastic. Um, yeah, so- <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess a yeah, fantastic hole, probably. Um, yes. Uh, uh, so right, he yeah. says, uh, our interest here lies in the protection of our own men against this brainwashing technique. We must face reality. It is obviously impossible to hypnotize every man in the armed forces of the United States. So let us concentrate on one special group, the pilots of the Air Force. Again, impossible and impractical to hypnotize every man in this group. However, the fact remains that a certain proportion of them would be excellent hypnotic subjects. The same applies to every other branch of the service. And in all these branches, there are certain assignments where the danger of capture is great, where the individual does have information which would be a great value to the enemy, and where this individual would probably be a special target for brainwashing. And then in the final one here, this made my like vigilant citizen radar alarms go off uh, very loudly. But he goes on to say, in a broader sense for society... We should also bear in mind the matter of motivation, a subject with which we will deal more fully in the next chapter. Hypnotism has a startling capacity to step up motivation in the human being, to step up his motor, his driving power. In many cases, the human being is a failure because like Don Quixote, he jumps on his horse and rides off madly in all directions at the same time. He does not channel his energy. With, hyp with hypnotism, we can set up what we term a mono-motivational field wherein the energies of the individual are firmly pointed in one certain direction with the exclusion of side issues and distractions. This increase in motivation can apply to long-range objectives such as the educational or occupational aims of the individual or can apply to very short-range objectives such as a basketball game tonight. In either case, we get a much more efficient individual and in the case of the short-range objectives, an individual who follows through with a savage energy which is almost unbelievable. The reader can easily visualize military situations where motivation is extremely important. Many of these will call for increased motivation over a long period of time, where the individual settles down on a long-term program and follows it through with energy and determination. The more dramatic instances will, of course, be those short-term assignments wherein the individual converts himself into a dynamo of energy with a single-track mind for a period of a few hours or a few days. 
Um, Ooh, yikes. Uh, yeah, it's very uh, interesting, uh, the idea that, like, once you're hypnotized by, like, you know, uh, I, I'm skeptical as whether this is true as well, but the idea that, like, what once you're hypnotized by uh, someone, like, you know, they can hypnotize you to not be hypnotizable by anybody else, and so, mm-hmm. like, we have to hypnotize as many people in the Air Force as we possibly can so that they can't yeah. be hypnotized by any, you know, it's, like, yeah, literally, exactly. like, exactly. Any you know, pilot that I, have crashes. To kill, I have to kill my kid in the garage so that, you know, the, the uh-huh. ball won't get uh-huh. him, you know yeah everyone uh, has but, to be mind controlled like people i mean he's yeah, really saying right there like air force pilots should be mind controlled, controlled. yeah yeah they should be hypnotized everyone to save them from the mind control but and then i don't yeah, know like, like, like saying like but mentioning a basketball game really jumped out at me is like hold up because he's talking about you know various objectives and educational occupational aims uh and so I'm thinking about like what Vigilant Citizen loves to talk about, how like pop stars all have like an alter ego. Uh, who knows mm-hmm. if it's just some weird like ritualistic marketing trick that the record labels make them all do. But it's that idea of like, you know, Beyonce, when she goes on stage, she stops being Beyonce and she becomes Sasha Fierce or mm-hmm. uh, Nicki Minaj in a particularly bizarre example becomes Roman Zolanski and dresses up like a demonic oh uh, satanic pope. Um Cool. Yeah, exactly. And uh, basically you have like multiple kind of um, uh, things like that uh, in like pop music. And then you have like, uh, you know, it's hard to say. I'm not a big sports person, but I don't know. I did watch the Super Bowl last month and it's interestingly watching, you know, I think a lot of people might describe some of the greatest athletes as like being in a trance when they're in the game. Like they're, they're quote in the zone, right? Like Tom Brady Mm -hmm. didn't like smile or like talk to anybody the entire Super Bowl, even when he was like winning by, you know, 20 points or whatever. And then at the end, it's like the hypnotic trance like broke as soon as like the whistle blew. And of course you could explain that by just like, oh, he has intense focus and stuff, but uh, his wife is also really into like witchcraft and shamanism and stuff. And, uh, yeah. I don't know. Like, it's just I interesting agree. to think yeah, like, I don't know like, anything has... about Tom Brady or his wife, but I mean, yeah, well, I actually, I think that that is interesting because in terms of like talking about symbol systems, like when you mentioned before, like Sirhan Sirhan, something, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I think we should probably go into that, uh, you know, uh, case at like some later point, a later episode, but yeah. uh, something that's very interesting about that uh, case is like uh, Sirhan Sirhan's interest in Rosicrucianism and, and yep. like uh, or Amork you know mm-hmm. and I think that sometimes like the symbol systems like the occult symbol systems can provide that same kind of scaffolding for how this works and like uh, you know uh, in reading that uh, you know I think that this this somehow this does relate to kind of the vigilant citizen or the sort of popularity of these Illuminati ideas actually in a, in a very like kind of a chilling or, or insidious uh, a way I think that you know, in when you read that hypnotism, uh, the passage from uh, uh, from Esther Brooks's book, definitely whether you know uh, this is something like you know probably definitely at least attempted you know uh, by an actual uh, practical applications, but definitely like no question we've seen that a million times like in the movies. You know mm-hmm. that like you know um, like you mentioned that one movie Telephone. Like I can think of a million others uh, where the, the idea Manchurian of, like, Candidate, agent. both of both yeah, Manchurian, the Manchurian Candidate, candidate movies, of course. of course. Yeah, right. And uh, it's interesting how, yeah, and I think that, like, uh, you know, I remember, uh, uh, I think, uh, one time when I was on You Can't Win, like, uh, 
uh, Ton mentioning that there was some guy who claimed that the Manchurian Candidate was actually like a true like story or whatever. You know, he was like, yeah, this is published as fiction, but and there's oh, a yeah, lot of yeah, that yeah. stuff, you know, in this. In no, this I, th- world I think it might have even yeah, been like Victor like, Marchetti who wrote uh, In Search uh, for the Manchurian Candidate, uh, or yeah, Victor, or, uh, right. yeah, yeah, Marchetti or Marx was the other uh, M A R K S. I forget his first yeah, name. But um, either but, way, it's interesting yeah. to think of how that like conception, the idea of how hypnosis works. Like the idea, like you know, is something that can actually be a support to the use of hypnosis in that way. Like the expectation that, like, I'm gonna be a sleeper assassin or whatever, like based on seeing a million such movies, like, mm-hmm. uh, or having the idea out there, is actually like probably one of the biggest supports to anything like that actually being possible. Uh, in in the same way that, like, you know, the idea of like what the brainwashing that other people do is is a support to uh you know this idea of brainwashing mm-hmm. is, is a huge support to the actual practice of it uh or the the tenability of it as, as a real thing uh, it, uh especially when we're dealing with this like very nebulous terrain of of the mind uh mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and there's like many ways to there's multiple ways to like you know bake a cake to bake that cake basically um yeah is what they um, kind of seem to be getting at but there's like this underlying process that can be tapped into particularly in a consensual what did he call it yeah well oh the uh the consensual domain or the yeah consensual, the consensual yeah i think it was a consensual yeah. domain yeah like uh but of course you know it's just like having a sort of shared terms like that there's like consent around like the the situation like in, in some broad way you know yeah like kind of similar even to what uh, as Brooks was saying, or you know, and when he yeah, which feels idea, like so like, relevant you know, to like political ideologies, religions, cults, like any kind of magical kind of thing, like you know, yeah. where basically like the or in an LSD con, like the set and setting of like when you're entering into this like consensual domain. Um, I mean, a lot depends on like the like what's possible and not possible is like yeah, well that's like. There's very, like, uh, you know, shamanic aspects, too. Like, you know, a lot of this is created in the context of clinical psychiatry. And Mm -hmm. uh, you really can see, like, the, you know, we've talked a little bit recently in recent episodes about, like, the phenomenon of, like, p-hacking or, like, you know, non-replicable results uh, being touted, (laughs) you know, and things like that. Uh I actually, you know, and it's interesting that he, uh, Erickson says, like, uh, you know, Pavlovian sort of behaviorism uh, or that type of thing, behavioral conditioning versus hypnosis, you know, that's, like, the same thing whereas like uh we don't necessarily think of those things as being a comparable we don't think of pavlov as being a hypnotist you know like that's very different like the way that these terms have a very fluid meaning and like you know they uh aren't necessarily like ontologically fixed ideas but uh i read in the process of doing research for this i stumbled upon like uh recent work that had been done like uh you know sort of re-exploring the milgram experiments the famous oh yeah you know electroshock yeah, and uh, apparently this uh, this researcher who had uh, sort of gone back into into Milgram's work sort of discovered that really like the famous statistic of like sixty percent of people went along with it or something. Yeah. That's like only from like one group of forty that participate out of like uh, seven hundred people who participated in the experiment. That was like a you know so basically like he chose the group that like uh, 
suggested his conclusion really most clearly i yeah wow like, uh, yeah i i really, did hear yeah. that it wasn't it's not replicable basically anymore they've they've gone back and looked at it and found that it's basically kind of an illegitimate experiment that sounds like it was kind of used to like psyop everybody from the In scientific way, like, community yeah, to the was. public yeah well it had like a sort of ideological function that mm-hmm. yeah like uh this researcher actually spoke to npr she also wrote a book called behind the shock machine gina perry is her name hmm. uh but, uh, you know, she actually went into it, like, because she saw Milgram as, like, a misunderstood genius uh, hmm. who people kind of had uh, ne- had been developing negative views about because, you know, of how challenging his work was for, you know, revealing these troubling truths about human nature. Mm. Uh, We're all just dirty little uh, po- yeah, totalitarian yeah. piggies um, on the inside. Right, yeah. That need to and, be controlled. Uh, so what she found was that over 700 people took part in the experiments. When the news of the experiment was first reported and the shocking statistics that 65% of people went to maximum voltage when the shock machine was reported, very few people, I think, realized then and even realized today the statistic applied to 26 out of 40 people. Of those other 70-odd, 700-odd people, the obedience rates varied enormously. In fact, there were variations on the experiment where no one obeyed. And mm. a lot of them actually, you know, talk, similar to what we're talking about, where, like, you know, people will stick their hands into, like, a rattlesnake uh, cage uh, in a lab setting because they feel that, you know, it's not really gonna setting, hurt them. No, no harm will come to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people were able actually to, they actually knew or able to figure it out that there wasn't, you know, this wasn't real. Uh, and I, that, I imagine like, they would know, have yeah. to be. It's another one of those things where, like, oh, people were just so stupid back then. But, like, really? I don't know. And you're doing it. Didn't they do that at Stanford? So I'd imagine um, yeah, you're you so. getting a lot of student like Stanford uh, no, was students. Yale? Was oh, at Yale? is it Yale? Think, of course. Yeah. Did he do it at? Uh Stanford? No, I, you're right. You're right. Uh, it's sure, at Yale. Yeah. I, I I just thought it was the same as Stanford Prison Experiment, but uh, yeah, it, which had a similar right. kind of conclusion. Really flawed, like bizarre. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. That, like, the entire not scientific by any sense. No, of the term. Like, really, not at you know, all. Except the really fluid sense of the term, where like we realize that like you know these uh, supposed like facts and logic and assailable methodologies are really much more qualitative and much more like you know uh subjective than uh they represent themselves as being absolutely Uh, and in fact like that whole the whole model and the whole ontology is part of what is like a self-reinforcing cycle that kind of makes them makes them work in a way you know like it's it's just like we talked about chomsky's academic work being so like ideologically productive and in some cases necessary to like early cyberneticists because it gave them kind of a deeper ground like a you know philosophical grounding for what they were doing instead of just building like electricity boxes mm-hmm. you know it's yeah. like you needed something you needed these like black pilled social experiments to convince like psychologists and i don't know just all of society that we were all just a bunch of like yeah like like totalitarian little piggies on the inside that Uh, were ready to just become monsters like at the easiest opportunity ignoring like the the sort of meta influences of the setup of the experiment itself where i think like in, in the stanford prison experiment it was almost like it was totally set up to like encourage you and like like there was like an implicit expectation to like abuse your authority that 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 was kind of like you know nut, they were nudged basically in a way that I feel like the official results of it maybe like didn't fully recognize or incorporate and same with Milgram yeah. it's like some people were able to realize that this probably wasn't real and for whatever reason like went along with it and way more people refused to do it than was said so yeah. Apparently uh, you the people know who like didn't realize it was real were more likely to or people who did realize it was real were more likely to shock the person because for the same reason that we mentioned you know like 
they know that no one's actually in danger. Like, for sure. For, I was, yeah, like, the people I who know. thought it was real probably yeah. didn't do it for the most part, yeah, which actually le- confirms, way less inclined. Yeah, confirms exactly. something generally good about human nature instead of something that, like, we're all just so fucking yeah, evil and exactly. shitty. The, and, like, yeah, there's certain hypotheses that are overdetermined. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. It's the same kind of story that seems to come down from long ago. Two friends having coffee together when something flies by their window. It might be out on that lawn, which is wide at least half of the playing field. Because there's no explaining your imagination can make you see and feel. Somebody wants nothing, but Not a me.